Goodbyes are awful. Goodbyes are pretty terrible. I imagine that everyone in this room probably has at least one memory of some difficult emotional goodbye. It is so difficult to say goodbye, whether permanently someone has passed away, we've lost them, or even just temporarily we move and change locations. It is so difficult to say goodbye. I've always noticed that saying goodbye is such a deep pain that sometimes it ruins reunions. Like sometimes I've even thought, I don't want to visit my family. I don't want them to come see me. I don't want to go see them because I'm so afraid of having to say goodbye. And even when you first get, you know, you're, you're spending time with family or friends and you're there for a week or five days or so long, even every day you have to fight that temptation not to think about, I have to say goodbye soon. I have to say goodbye soon. Goodbyes are painful. Goodbyes are hard. And certainly many, many people in Scripture can relate to this, as we will find out in 1 Samuel chapter 20 today. If you would open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 20, this is the story of a very difficult and painful goodbye. It's a very sad story, as David has to say goodbye to his best friend. But I think as we will find after a closer examination, that while the narrative of this story is very sad and very depressing, that the text itself is actually quite encouraging. I think we're going to find an encouraging and uplifting message today, and I think we're going to read a chapter that is not so much about saying goodbye at all. 1 Samuel chapter 20, it's a long chapter, but we are going to read the entire narrative together. Would you please follow along with me, for these are the very words of God. Then David fled from Naoth and Ramah and came and said before Jonathan, What have I done? What is my guilt? And what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? And he said to him, Far from it. You shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing, either great or small, without disclosing it to me. And why should my father hide this from me? It is not so. But David vowed again, saying, Your father knows well that I have found favor in your eyes. And he thinks, Do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives, and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. Then Jonathan said to David, Whatever you say, I will do for you. David said to Jonathan, Behold, tomorrow is the new moon. And I should not fail to sit at table with the king, but let me go that I may hide myself in the field till the third day at evening. If your father misses me at all, then say, David earnestly asked, leave me to run to Bethlehem, his city, for there is a yearly sacrifice there for all the clan. If he says, good, it will be well with your servant. But if he is angry, then you know that harm is determined by him. Therefore, deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. But if there is guilt in me, kill me yourself. For why should you bring me to your father? And Jonathan said, Far be it from you. If I knew that it was determined by my father that harm should come to you, would I not tell you? Then David said to Jonathan, Who will tell me if your father answers you roughly? And Jonathan said to David, Come, let us go out into the field. So they both went out into the field. And Jonathan said to David, The Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow of the third day, behold, if he is well disposed toward David, shall I not then send and disclose it to you? But should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan and more also, if I do not disclose it to you and send you away that you may go in safety. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. 
If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. Then Jonathan said to him, Tomorrow is the new moon, and you will be missed because your seat will be empty. On the third day, go down quickly to the place where you hid yourself when the matter was in hand, and remain beside the stone heap. And I will shoot three arrows to the side of it, as though I shot at a mark. And behold, I will send the boy, saying, Go, find the arrows." If I say to the boy, look, the arrows are on this side of you, take them, then you are to come, for the, as the Lord lives, it is safe for you and there is no danger. But if I say to the youth, look, the arrows are beyond you, then go, for the Lord has sent you away. And as for the matter of which you and I have spoken, behold, the Lord is between you and me forever. So David hid himself in the field, and when the new moon came, the king sat down to eat food. The king sat on his seat, as at other times, on the seat by the wall. Jonathan sat opposite, and Abner sat by Saul's side, but David's place was empty. Yet Saul did not say anything that day, for he thought, uh, something has happened to him. He is not clean. Surely that's it. He is not clean. But on the second day, the day after the new moon, David's place was empty, and Saul said to Jonathan his son, Why has not the son of Jesse come to the meal, either yesterday or today? And Jonathan answered Saul, David earnestly asked leave of me to go to Bethlehem. He said, Let me go, for our clan holds a sacrifice in the city. And my brother has commanded me to be there. So now, if I have found favor in your eyes, let me get away and see my brothers. For this reason, he has not come to the king's table. Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan. And he said to him, you son of a perverse and rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. Then Jonathan answered Saul, his father, Why should he be put to death? What has he done? But Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. And Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food the second day of the month. For he was grieved for David because his father had disgraced him. In the morning, Jonathan went out into the field to the appointment with David and with him a little boy. And he said to his boy, run and find the arrows that I shoot. As the boy ran, he shot an arrow beyond him. And when the boy came to the place of the arrow that Jonathan had shot, Jonathan called after the boy and said, is not the arrow beyond you? And Jonathan called after the boy, hurry, be quick, do not stay. So Jonathan's boy gathered up the arrows and came to his master. But the boy knew nothing. Only Jonathan and David knew the matter. And Jonathan gave his weapons to his boy and said to him, Go and carry them into the city. And as soon as the boy had gone, David rose from beside the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. They kissed one another. For free me, David rose from beside the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. And they kissed one another and wept with one another, David weeping the most. Then Jonathan said to sit, David, go in peace, because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, the Lord shall be between me and you and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. Well, thank you for reading that entire narrative. I think it's important that we read the whole thing. I don't think it would have been appropriate to break this long text 
up. Let us just briefly summarize and then you'll see why. So Jonathan exposes his naivete. Uh, Jonathan does not think that Saul is still interested in killing David. And that might seem crazy to us based on the events of last week. But if you recall, Jonathan, we have no reason to believe Jonathan was privy to any of all that that happened. The last time we saw Jonathan, he, he, he made his dad swear an oath not to kill David, and his dad swore it. Right? Saul, he broke that oath, but Jonathan doesn't know that yet. Jonathan is, so David finally gets away from Naoth, and he comes to Jonathan and says, what have I done? Why is your dad still trying to kill me? And Jonathan said, he's not, right? He's, he swore to me that he wouldn't, and if he changed his mind on that, he would have told me. He, told, he tells me everything. And David says, well, yeah, but he knows that you and I are close. He, he knows not to tell you. And so David swears, sort of another oath, if you will, that Saul really wants to kill me, and so they come up with this test to figure out Saul's true intentions. And the, the, the feast of the new moon is coming up. It says, you can find this in Numbers chapter 28. There was a feast at the beginning of every month. That's why they call it the new moon, right, based on a lunar calendar. And uh, Saul had apparently made this a three-day feast. And David said, I'm supposed to be there. It's my duty. It's my job. If I'm not there, he's going to notice. So they lied. And if you're afraid of that, I would encourage you. I preached a sermon in this series on righteous deception. I would encourage you to go back and listen to that sermon. But they concocted this false narrative that, oh, David has this family thing. And then David tells Jonathan, if, if Saul's okay with that, then we know he doesn't really want to kill me. If Saul is not okay with that, then may that expose to you his true intentions. And as we read in the text, Saul is not okay with that. Saul is very clear that he wants to kill David, and this makes Jonathan grieve, and he refuses to even honor the festival after that. But there are a couple important things also, in, by summary, to, to notice. There was this interesting sort of break in the text as they were devising this end of the plan, where they got together before they came up with the end of this plan. And what you'll, if you recall, in 1 Samuel chapter 18, and I intentionally did this, we flew through this because I, I wanted us to make a bigger deal about it in this chapter. But after David killed Goliath, if you'll recall, Jonathan came up to him, and the text says it very briefly, but the text talks about how they entered into a covenant together. They made a covenant relationship together, and the text didn't really tell us much about it. We learn more about it here, but we still don't know much about it. But they come together referencing this covenant. David, you are my covenant partner. I've come to you. You, you owe me allegiance. And not only do they reiterate or reestablish this covenant, Jonathan, even before they initiate this plan, forces David to amend the covenant to make it even stronger. Jonathan is so convinced that the Lord's anointed will one day sit on the throne he wants to make sure that David does not wipe out his descendants. This is very common, by the way, throughout world history. When a new power takes over, things don't go well for the power that was there. Right? They're usually slaughtered, their whole family, or sent into exile or something really bad. And so David says, Let's, we're in covenant together. Let's extend this out to my generation. When you sit on the throne, please, even though I was the one who's supposed to be there and my children were supposed to deal kindly with us, and may our families, may our houses be forever in peace with one another. So they amend their covenant, they reestablish their covenant, and then they finish the plan. And David realizes, well, there's a great danger here. Like, if, if Saul is fine with me, then great, I'll just come out of hiding. But if he's not fine with me, how are you going to tell me? Like, we can't just go walk around the city having a conversation. So they come up with this plan where he'll hide behind a rock and Jonathan will shoot arrows and he has different code words. So he'll, it sounds like he's speaking to his servant boy, but he's actually speaking to David. And that's the way he can kind of covertly tell David the good or bad news. Now, there is kind of a weird thing in the text, though, because they don't seem to honor this safety protocol. 
right? Did you notice that? It was kind of weird. He shoots the arrow and he gives him the code, go, run, hurry, do not stay. And then David just comes out and greets him and they talk and they weep and they hug. And uh, there's different theories as to how we make sense of this. Uh, a number of different theories. I, my personal one, this is speculation, but I just want you to see that this is not like some blatant contradiction. My personal theory is I think that the code worked, David got up, but David, because the text goes out of its way to tell us that David wept more. David is the one really, really hurt right now. More even than Jonathan, David is the one really, really hurt. And so I think that in that moment of grief and despair, David said, forget it. Saying goodbye to my friend is worth death. I'm just going to go hug him, and I'm just going to go kiss him. I'm just going to go tell him goodbye. I, I can't leave like this. So I think David, you know, maybe he saw, well, the coast is clearly clear. I, I think I'm okay. But for some reason, they don't really seem to honor the plan. They meet and greet, but that's not a huge detail. The point is Saul is clearly still trying to kill David for no good reason. Jonathan is now convinced that David is in danger, and Jonathan sends David into hiding. David is now a fugitive of his own kingdom, he is now on the run from his own king. It's a very, very sad narrative. But when we look at the chapter, as I said, I think there's something very encouraging here. And why do I say that? Because all throughout chapter 20, there was a repeated theme. Something kept coming up over and over and over again. And this was the theme of covenant. 1 Samuel chapter 20 is all about covenant covenant relationships. It is about the establishment and the acting upon of a covenant. Covenant, covenant, covenant. Now, why do I say this? Well, the word is mentioned or alluded to twice in verse 16 and verse 42. But more than that, there are covenant vows made all throughout the text. Five different times a covenant vow or a covenant pledge or a covenant oath is made in verse 3, in verse 12, in verse 17, in verse 21, in verse 42. And the flip side of covenant vows are covenant curses. So in, in the Bible, when God establishes a covenant with people, there are promises. A covenant always has a promise. If you do this, then this will happen. There's a promise. There are obligations. If you do this, then this will happen. So there are covenant promises. There are covenant obligations. But there's a third aspect of that. What do we do if we don't meet those obligations? Well, then there are covenant curses. And we see not only these vows, I swear as the Lord lives, I will do this, this is true, this is true. We see these covenant vows. We see two covenant curses in verse 8 and 13. So all throughout, at two times, five times, another two times, we have some allusion or reference, explicit or implicit, to a covenant. That averages, by the way, a covenant commitment every five verses. We are constantly throughout this long chapter being brought back to this idea of David and Jonathan's covenant with, between each other and they said between the Lord. So 1 Samuel 20 is trying to tell us something about covenants. It's trying to tell us something about this biblical concept of covenant. A covenant is kind of like a pact, like a, a formal contractual relationship between two or more parties. And what is it that we learn about covenants from 1 Samuel chapter 20, I think we learn two related things. There are two important and very related things we learn about covenants. First, we learn about our need for covenant security. 1 Samuel 20 reveals to us through David's circumstances our need for the security of covenant relationships. I, I get this from a couple different places. Look back again with me at verse 8. 
David, after establishing this plan and this relationship began with Jonathan, he says this, Therefore deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. So David, when, when, when his world is falling apart, everything in David's life is crumbling. He's on the run. He's a fugitive. Saul's trying to kill him. Saul's servant's trying to kill him. David has no security. He's estranged from his wife right now. He's put Samuel in great danger. David's world is falling apart. Who does he run to? Who does David go to in his greatest time of need? Jonathan. Why Jonathan? Why not just stay with Samuel? Why not go home to his wife? Well, because Jonathan has an obligation to him that no one else has. Jonathan has an obligation that simply loving Samuel is is not enough right. Or forgive me, loving David is not enough right now. Jonathan hasn't just loved David. They have framed that love with covenant. And so David tells him, essentially, you have to deal kindly with me. You have to. Why? The word there is for. The connecting word is for. Deal kindly with me for. Because of this covenant. David is finding security protection and help in his covenant bond. I'm sure there are lots of people who want to help me, but Jonathan has to. Jonathan is obligated to help me. As a matter of fact, the ESV, I I don't like their translation in verse 8. They translate one Hebrew word as deal kindly. That Hebrew word is the word hesed. And hesed is a very difficult word to translate. Because hesed is one word that's packed with meaning. And so it's very difficult. There's really not an English word, that single word that translates it really well, which is why usually one or two or maybe even three words come together. And hesed basically has two parts to it. There is a connotation of love. The word hesed means love or mercy or compassion. But more than that, hesed also means faithfulness or, or strong, or strength, or security. So the word hesed isn't just love, it's, it's, it's faithful love, it's obedient love, it's committed love. As a matter of fact, sometimes this word is even translated as covenant love. It's love, the passions and emotions of love, that is framed and strengthened with a permanent commitment. And he is saying, give me this faithful, obligated love. That's why a more common translation of hesed in most of its context is something like loving kindness or enduring love, something like that. He is saying, give me covenant love because we're in covenant. You owe me your allegiance. You owe me help. David is turning to his covenant commitment to find help, to find strength, to find security. In his world where everything is falling apart, there's one thing that's certain, his covenant His covenant with Jonathan is the one certain thing. I think we also notice this at the very end in verse 42. Look at verse 42 with me. After their embrace, he says goodbye. Notice what he says. Then Jonathan Jonathan said to David, go in peace. Stop there. How arrogant. How insulting. How condescending. David's world is falling apart. David is about to wander into a future. He has no idea where he's going. David has no home right now. He is not welcome in his own country, in his own home. David has no idea what his future looks like. His friends cannot help him right now. 
What is David going to do? He doesn't know. He is living in a world of danger and insecurity. And here comes Jonathan telling him, go in peace. Go in peace. Have peace. What would compel Jonathan to say something so apparently condescending? How could David have peace? Easy for you to say, Jonathan. You're not the, you're not the fugitive on the run while your father and his army is trying to kill you. Easy for you to say, go in peace. What is Jonathan clinging to that he believes gives David true peace? Verse 42, then Jonathan said to David, go in peace because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord saying, the Lord shall be between me and you and between my offspring and your offspring forever. What is giving David security? What is giving him peace right now? A covenant he believes Jonathan and God will be faithful to. God and Jonathan will be faithful to this covenant. That's where his peace is found. David is able to have security and peace when his world is falling apart because that's what covenants do. The promises of covenants give us something to cling to when the world is not right. David has a need for the security of a covenant. And so we, as we try to learn a lesson from 1 Samuel 20, we need to enter into that. And we need to see we too have a need for the security and peace that comes with covenant. Before we talk about how that need is fulfilled, there's another side to this coin. Not only do they need the peace and security of the covenant, they need covenant renewal. In other words, They need to be reminded of the covenant. You see, the covenant can provide peace and security, but you won't experience peace or security if you don't remember it. If you forget it, if you forget its promises or you don't have faith in its promises, then what good is is the hope and security that comes with it? So what David needs at this moment is he needs to be reminded regularly of this, the security found in this covenant. We see that again in verse 42. That's part of it. Jonathan says, David, go in peace because... We have sworn an oath. He is, he is telling David to remember the covenant. When you're tempted to be anxious, when you're tempted to be afraid, remember the covenant. Bring the covenant promises back to your mind. Let the covenant give you peace. He's telling him, when you wander into the wilderness, do not forget the covenant. Don't forget it. Bring the covenant promises to your mind. We need to be regularly, constantly reminded of the covenant promises that give us peace and security. I think we also see this in verse 17. Look at verse 17 with me. Notice after they discussed their covenant and amended it, verse 17, and Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him. David has already sworn oaths. He's already made a covenant. But Jonathan wanted him to do it again. Let's do it again. Let's do it again. This same covenant, we need need to be reminded of it. We need to recommit ourselves to it. Make the promise again. I need to hear it. Make the promise again. This is why, by the way, a lot of, well, maybe I shouldn't say a lot. I don't know many people who do it. But it's not an uncommon thing for married couples to have later on in life, to have like another small little re-wedding ceremony where they recommit their vows. And they're not saying the first ones didn't count. They're not saying the first ones weren't true. But sometimes we need that. We need to renew them. I need to be reminded, will you promise to me again that you'll never leave me? I need to hear it again. I know it's already been established. I need to hear it again. Swear again. We have a need for the peace and security of the covenant, but we are fickle people. We are anxious 
people. It's not enough just to have that covenant. We need to be reminded of it. We need to remember it. We need to renew our vows and our commitments time and time again. So we see in David's example our shared need for the security of the covenant and for the renewal of the covenant. And so where do we find these covenant needs met? David found them in this very unique, peculiar covenant that we are not part of, that I am not asking us to join into. Where do we find our covenant needs? Where do we find the security of covenant? Turn in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8. Towards the end of your New Testament, at the very end of all of Paul's epistles. So if you've hit James or Peter or John, you've gone too far. Hebrews chapter 8, beginning in verse 6. By the way, if we had time, what I would really like to do is just to read all of Hebrews 7, all of Hebrews 8, all of Hebrews 9, all of Hebrews 10. But I won't put you through that. We already had a long text today. But I would encourage you to read through those chapters this week. Read through Hebrews 7 through 10 this week. But let's look just at a small portion, Hebrews chapter 8, beginning in verse 6. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, for the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Where do you find covenant security? You can find it today in a covenant that is far better than the covenant that Jonathan made with David. You can find security in a covenant, and this is the amazing thing, that Hebrews chapter 8 is explicitly clear, is even greater than the covenant God made with Israel. It's greater than Jonathan and David's. It's greater than the Old Covenant. And why is it greater? Because the promises are better. The greatest covenant relationship in the world, the greatest covenant security one could ever find, is offered to you in Jesus Christ today. Jesus Christ offers us by faith in Him a covenant relationship which makes God give us promises, the greatest promises a person could ever have, and those are the promises you need to cling to when your world is falling apart. God, who cannot lie, has made covenant promises to you. Isn't that good news in a dark and terrifying world? The promises of God. 
Now, what are these promises in the new covenant? Well, we, we just heard them from Jeremiah 31. That's where the author of Hebrews quotes from. The promise is that he will be our God. He will put his laws into our minds. He will write them on our hearts. Everyone shall know the Lord and he will be merciful toward our iniquities. He will remember our sins no more. Those are some pretty good promises. But I want us to, to elaborate on that. Let's break this down. What are some of the key promises that we cling to in the new covenant? Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15. One chapter over. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15. Speaking of Jesus, verse 15, Therefore he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So what's one of the promises of the new covenant that is yours by faith in Jesus Christ? An eternal inheritance. An eternal reward. God has promised to reward you forever. Eternally, forever. You will be blessed and rewarded forever by faith in Christ Jesus. What trouble of this world, in compared to that, could possibly discourage you? I might lose my job tomorrow. Yeah, that's scary. You're going to heaven forever. <laughs> Doctor told me I've got cancer. That's really sad. That's really scary. You're going to heaven forever. That's a pretty good promise. Paul himself tells us that the sufferings of this present age are not worth even being compared to the glory that is awaiting us. What does the new covenant, what is God's promise to you when your world is falling apart? I have an inheritance awaiting for you and it will never fade. You'll go to heaven forever. But the text tells us why that happens. Because a death has occurred. This eternal reward could not be ours if we are still dead in our sins. And so that leads us to the other promise of the New Testament. But let's read it more explicitly. Look at verses 24 through 28 of this very chapter. Verse 24. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself. Now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not of his own. For then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. What's the other promise of the new covenant? The forgiveness of your sins. That Christ Jesus lives on your behalf. He has entered into the holy place, not made on earth, not made by hands. He has entered into the heavenly holy of holies and he lives on your behalf and he constantly mediates a sacrifice to you which frees you from your transgressions. How good is that promise when the world and when the devil would want to tempt you with your sin? You're not worthy to be loved by God. You're not worthy to go to heaven. Your past is too messy. Your past is too wicked. Yes, it is. But grace and mercy have come to me and my mediator in the new covenant who lives on my behalf, who has paid for my sins. When Satan tempts me to despair... And tells me of the guilt within. 
Upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. What's one of the promises of the New Testament? You're forgiven. That's a covenant promise to you. You're forgiven. The Lord does not hold your sins against you. You are not a sinner. You're forgiven. By the way, there's even more though. There's even more than just the forgiveness of sins and living in heaven forever. There's even more. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 through 14. Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 11. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So attached to your forgiveness of sins is the eternal inheritance, but there's something else attached to that. That because Christ has fulfilled the Father's will, because he has redeemed the Father's people, he has now been raised from the dead, ascended to the right hand of God, and what he's doing from that throne is he's making all his enemies a footstool at his feet. One of the promises of the New Testament, of the New Covenant, is that Christ will destroy every enemy. And you know why that's good news? Because we are the body of Christ. His enemies are our enemies. So what's one of the promises that God gives you in the new covenant? All your enemies, all who seek to destroy you, I will devour them. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, by the way, the reason this is such good news is because who, what is the greatest enemy to all people? The greatest enemy is not some political ruler. It's not even devil. It's not even Satan. It's death itself. And Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, because Christ must conquer all enemies, when he returns, he's going to conquer death. What does it look like to conquer death? Paul tells us he's going to resurrect the dead. Death cannot hold you because of Christ. That's a promise of the new covenant, that you will rise again from the dead. You will conquer death. That's a promise of the new covenant. Your enemies will be destroyed. That's a promise of the new covenant. That's a promise of God. And I ask you again rhetorically, how much good news is that in a world that hates us? In a world where everything is falling apart and the devil and his army are coming after the Christian church, we are promised they will be devoured. They will be crushed under the feet of Jesus. That's a promise. It hasn't happened yet, not fully, but it's promised. That's what we cling to. And I want us, before we wrap this up, I really want us to see an amazing connection to this. So we are told in the book of Hebrews that one of the promises of the new covenant is that Christ Jesus would destroy all enemies under his feet. The reason that language is so intriguing is because it should sound slightly familiar to you. You know what it should sound like? It should sound like the amended covenant Jonathan made with David. What, what was Jonathan's covenant? What was the covenant in verse 42? Don't even turn back there. See if you remember. What was the promise that Jonathan told David? I want you to remember this so that you can have peace. The Lord will be between me and you, and he will destroy all the enemies of David. So Jonathan and David enter into this 
covenant with God that David's enemies would be made a footstool at the throne of David's feet. And we don't have time to look there now, but you can write down uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, God ups the ante. And God takes this covenant that Jonathan and David and God made, and he ups the ante, and he promises David what we call the Davidic covenant, where he tells David, your throne and your house shall endure forever. You will always have one of your descendants sitting on the throne, and I will crush your enemies under his feet. The promise of the Davidic covenant that one of David's sons would sit on a throne forever and the enemies of his son, and by extension of David, David and his lineage's enemies would be crushed under the feet of that throne. That's the Davidic promise. That's in Hebrews chapter 10. That's in 1 Samuel chapter 20. And guess how the apostle Peter brings this all together. Turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. This is... Uh, This amazing post-Pentecost sermon, Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 29. Acts chapter 2, verse 29. The Apostle Peter, speaking to the Jews gathered there who have just witnessed Pentecost. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him, that's a covenant, that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. That he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, And of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So Peter takes the Davidic promise, which is substantially the same as Jonathan and David's covenant. He takes the Davidic covenant and says, how is that fulfilled? One of David's grandchildren, Jesus Christ, ascended from the grave and has now been raised to the right hand of God. So Jesus is sitting on the throne of David and what's he doing there? Hebrews chapter 10, subduing all of David's enemies at his feet. A promise of the new covenant is that all the enemies of God, and by extension, therefore, all of our true enemies, will be devoured. Isn't that good news? Doesn't that give us hope? What are the promises of the new covenant? That Christ Jesus is Lord. That he died for your sins. That he rose from the dead and he intercedes for you in heaven. That he will return again to vindicate you, to resurrect you, and give you eternal life. Those are God's promises to you if you believe in Jesus. He's promised that. The faithful, unchanging God who cannot lie has promised you those things are true. So what's our hope in a hard and broken world? These promises. This is the security we need in this difficult life. The promises of the new covenant 
This is what gives us strength and hope and security. And that is why, like David, we need constant, regular reminding of these promises. We need covenant renewal. This world is hard, and we, like David, are sojourners in this world. We need covenant renewal. We need to regularly remember the promises of God. This is why we meet at least once a week. This is why God has ordained the church to meet once a week. Life is too hard. You cannot go very long without forgetting these promises and crumbling to despair and depravity. We meet every single Sunday to be used as instruments of God to help remind each other of these great promises God has given us. But I think one of the most helpful things for us to see in terms of covenant renewal is this is the purpose of our sacraments. This is the, one of the primary reasons why the Lord has given us baptism in the Lord's Supper. And there's an important teaching point here. We need to understand, I, I, I'm calling us as a church to, to rethink what I think is the common evangelical approach to the sacraments. When I hear most evangelicals, and I spoke this way for most of my life, so I'm not criticizing anybody. But when we talk of the sacraments, we primarily talk about how we use the sacraments for us to speak to the world. Right? Baptism is how I tell the world I'm a follower of Jesus. And the Lord's Supper is how I tell the world that Jesus died for my sins. We look at the sacraments and we see us talking to you. We see us talking to them. Now, two things can be true at once. I do think that's part of it. Paul himself says in the Lord's Supper, as often as you eat this, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So there certainly is an element of that. By the way, I, I was actually listening this week to a pastor who is very involved in missionary organizations around the world, and he was saying it's interesting in many countries around the world, he didn't specify which ones, you can, like countries that heavily persecute Christians, you can read a Bible and not be persecuted. You can talk about Christianity and not be persecuted. You can even, uh, you know, you can even say you're a Christian and not be persecuted. It's not until people are baptized that they're kicked out of the home. It's not until they're baptized that they go to prison. Even the unbelieving world sees that in baptism there is this public profession. That is when we have really crossed the line. That is when we're not just professors anymore. Like, no, we are Christians. So certainly the sacraments are us speaking to the world. That's part of it. But I think that's an accidental consequence more than anything. What we need to understand is the sacraments are not us speaking to the world. The sacraments are God speaking to us. It is not our voice in these sacraments. It is God's voice. This is not about what we are saying to the world. This is about what God is saying to us. When you are baptized, you are not so much telling the world that I'm a Christian now. What's actually happening is God is giving you a sign. He's giving you a physical reminder of what he has done for you. In your baptism, God is promising you your sins are forgiven. You've been washed clean. I've forgiven you. Your baptism is for you. It's not for the world. God is promising you you have been buried with Christ and you have raised again. Baptism is God speaking to you. I have made you clean. I have resurrected you. It's your promise. It's God promising to you these amazing eternal blessings in the new covenant. And the same thing goes for the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is not an evangelistic event. We don't invite our neighbors to the Lord's Supper in hopes that they will believe in the gospel. Now, sometimes that happens and that's a glorious thing. But the reason we come to the Supper is because like David, life is hard. 
And I need to be reminded, Jesus died for my sins. He's coming back to take me home. The supper is God's promise to you. It's not you promising to the world. It's God promising to you. The supper is not an evangelistic event. It's a covenant meal. It's the family of God sitting at the table of God and letting God remind us of all of these amazing things awaiting for us. That's why Jesus says, as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. This is why when Jesus took the cup, he called it the new covenant in my blood. When we come to the table, we are remembering the promises of God. We are remembering this glorious covenant he has made with us, and we are clinging to those promises for another week. And this is why, by the way, I am such a fan of doing this every single week. I not only think it's thoroughly biblical, I not only think the historical argumentation is overwhelmingly on the side of weekly communion, but more than that, just pragmatically, I have to ask you, is life so easy that you only need to be reminded of the gospel once a quarter? Is life so easy that you only need to be reminded of the promises of God once a month or once a year? I think I can maybe speak for all of us when I say, life is difficult, life is hard. I want to come and I want God to remind me of his promises every week. Every week I want to hear God tell me, my son intercedes for you. I have an eternal inheritance awaiting you. You will conquer the dead. Jesus Christ has forgiven you of your sins. I need to hear that every single week. What we do in the Lord's Supper is, this is basically us like Jonathan telling one another, go in peace. The world out there is messy and it's painful and it's difficult, but here, go in peace. Why should I go out into that messy, dangerous world in peace? Because we've been reminded of the promises of God. Because God's promises overcome that world. We come to the Lord's Supper so that we can, with a straight face, bid everyone farewell. Go in peace. Jesus is Lord. Go in peace. Jesus has forgiven us of our sins. Go in peace. Jesus is coming again to raise us from the dead. Go in peace. Jesus is making all his enemies a footstool at his feet. Go in peace. We need covenant renewal. The text of 1 Samuel 20 reminds us not only of the security found in the new covenant, but it reminds us of those promises and instructs us to regularly renew our vows to God, to regularly remember the promises of God and to stand on these promises standing on these promises that cannot fail when the howling storms of doubt and fear assail. By the living word of God, we shall prevail. Standing on the promises, we now can see perfect present cleansing in the blood for you and me. Standing in the liberty where Christ makes free. Standing on the promises of God.